Um, Psalm 113, 4 through 8. The title of this sermon is, This is My Story. This is my story. And to tell you the truth, I, I hope you fall in love with Psalm 113 and that it becomes your story. Let's read the, I'm just going to read uh, verses 4 through 8. I'm, well, I'm going to read uh, 4 and 5 right now, but we're going to wind up just touching on 9 because we're going to run out of time. Unless you guys want to stay for two hours, then I have uh, 19 pages of notes so we can stay longer. Just raise your hand if you want me to keep going. All right, so Psalm 113.4. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down or humbles himself to look on the heavens and the earth? The Lord is exalted over all the nations. We know through our, our Bible studies, we know through preaching, we know through uh, uh, radio commentaries, uh, Christian commentaries, we know that Satan is the prince of this air, that he is a ruler here on earth. You also have to be very clear that he was just an angel. Now, angels are pretty big mamma jamma, and I don't want to face one of them. But in, in the pecking order of creation, an angel is so far below God. There's just no comparison. Even though an angel may be more powerful and greater than we are, he, he, he may be able to have different kinds of influences, weapons that we're not aware of, he is still a created being. You have to know that Satan, when he fell, he took many angels with him. We call them demons because they've rebelled against God. And he has set up a kingdom in this realm. For instance, if you look at Daniel, you'll notice that the archangel Michael wrestled with the prince of per the king of Persia when he was sending a message to Daniel from heaven. He wrestled with the prince of Persia, a demonic angel that fell from heaven for 21 days before he could get past him. See, in the ancient days, the, the, the ancients were way more aware of the gods in their kingdoms, in their realms. They had realms set out where different gods were worshipped throughout the earth. And when you were at this place in Jerusalem, they said, Jehovah God reigns here. When you come over here, they would say, Dagon reigns here. They had different gods in those regions. And so when they thought of God, Jehovah, when they thought of the great I Am, they thought he was just a regional god. They thought that was the only place that he has influence. But the scripture tells us that our God reigns. He reigns over the earth. He reigns over all the powers of the earth, all the kingdoms of the earth. He reigns over the sun, the moon, and the stars. He reigns over the galaxies. He's so high above creation. He lives in the holy of holies where he cannot be touched. He lives in a realm that is all his, the only place that he as God can contain, attain. None of us, no created being, can attain that loftiness and that highness. The demons work very hard at influencing us as humans. Their biggest thing is helping us to suppress the truth. Romans chapter 1. See, the, 
Satan doesn't want you to understand who God is because if he can draw you away from God, he can keep you in your sins, he can let you die in your sins. He's not just satisfied with drawing you away from God and helping you to forget about God. He's not satisfied till you are destroyed because every time he looks at your face, every time he sees you, every time he beholds you, he sees an image of God. He sees his own creator when he looks at you because you are created in his image. He's not satisfied with just drawing you away. He wants to destroy you in your sins. I'm here to tell you that in my story, my story comes from the scriptures. My story says that my God reigns on high. He is so high and so lofty and so lifted up that he has to humble himself to behold the things in the heavens and in the earth. Have, have any of you guys seen the uh, movie um, District 9? Two more than, than first service. That's really cool. Okay, so in District 9 what happens is these aliens from outer space are coming and, and they accidentally make a stop at earth they, they wind up hovering over uh, South Africa, and uh, they have a busted-up ship. Well, when they come down to Earth, we let them colonize the little area. And when they colonize this little area, they live in such filth and such depravity, and it's just yuck. It's so bad. When I'm watching the movie, if I went in there, I'd want to don a chemical suit just to walk around the place because it, the filth was so bad. Well, that's an excellent picture of what the filth of sin has done to our world. Our world is so full of the filth from sin, the degradation from mankind. Um, when God destroyed the earth in Genesis 1, he said that man's thoughts are continually on evil. So God himself, so holy, so pure, so perfect, so perfect in love, so set apart, he has to literally force himself and humble himself and come in humility just to look upon us here on earth because of the filth that our sin has created. But I got to tell you, the scripture doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because he humbled himself so much. He loves you so much. He is so intensely, intimately involved with his creation, that he didn't just philosophically get dirty. He didn't just, in his thoughts, get dirty by looking down upon you and have to clean himself off from the filth of looking at us. He sent his son into our world. His son took on human flesh. Though perfect, without sin, he got his hands dirty walking among us. It's a great illustration when we see there's a guy that does the potter's wheel. If you've seen that, he does the potter's wheel and he gives the gospel and his wife sings a song. Well, when you watch this potter, it's pretty cool. He has to be intensely, intimately involved with that clay. He has to get his hands dirty. He has to take his, put on an apron and when he gets his hands on it, his hands start getting dirty, and he starts forming that clay. And he starts building a, a, a piece. He starts building a masterpiece. And while he's building and forming and putting pressure on that clay, all of a sudden you see the dirt 
and the grime from the clay, just moving up his arms and getting all over his shoulders, his aprons, all over his hair and his face. He is intimately, intensely involved with that piece of clay while he's making that uh, masterpiece. What, what, what was so fascinating for me is his wife was wearing this beautiful white gown while she's singing. And she's probably 15 feet away from him. She was pretty far out there. But every once in a while, while he's spinning that wheel and involved with the clay, spatters got on that white dress. Now, I don't know how well those things wash up and clean up, but I'm sure if it doesn't wash up and clean up, she might have been a little irritated with him after the show. But what the illustration for me said that the son came and got his hands all dirty without him sinning, perfect still, walking among us, but the Father's hands got dirty too, and the Holy Spirit's hands got dirty while he was intimately, intensely involved with our salvation. See, Jesus in his perfect love, perfect compassion, and perfect submission to the Father, in his spotless pureness and holiness, he came to our earth, he came to our place, and he said in his walk on this earth, I will take on the full sins of mankind. He became sin in our place. See, God isn't just so far above the heavens, and he's just looking down and watching everything happen. It isn't like a little uh, wind-up toy you make and let it jump around the table and you're watching it. No, no, no. God sent his son to be involved, to let you know he is involved with you. He wants a relationship with you, and he wants you to know who he is. So he said, in order for me to do that, I cannot just let this sin escape. I cannot just let this sin destroy my creation and the people I love. I cannot just be polluted by this sin that I have to wash off all of the time. I will cure the problem of sin. Jesus took on our sin and became the sin for us. What's amazing in my thoughts when I think about Christ on the cross, there's been some pretty cool movies out there that graphically illustrate what might have happened, and it, it was a graphic death. It was a bloody death. But when I watched him pounding the nails into his hands, the only thing I could think is, that's my sins. That hammer's driving that nail into his hands. It's my sin that's putting my Savior on that cross. See, Jesus knew that not only would he come here and that his enemies would attack him, but that our sins would turn against him also. Don't think at all. Don't think one time. Don't think for one minute that if you were there that day, that you would not yourself be yelling, crucify him. We ourselves in our sin and our love for darkness, we would have been in there crying out, crucify him. And I personally may have been one of the men, one of the soldiers nailing him to the cross. My sins have been high-handed, fist-in-God's-face kind of sins. I've pushed away from the table. I've run from my father. You know what's brought me back? There's a crazy guy in here named Edwin. He's praying for me. There's some gray-haired old ladies in here. Can I say that? With respect. Gray-haired mamas of the church that said, Sean, 
I prayed for you when you ran away from God. And those prayers touched my heart. Those prayers touched my soul. Those prayers helped me have a path to come back home to my Savior so that I can sit back down at the table. You know what? I'm getting my sermon all out of order. <laughs> so I might repeat myself a couple times. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm probably going to tell you again at the end. You know why you can't stay away if you've ever run from God? You know why if today's your first day back to church in years and years, there's a reason why you can't keep running from God. Have you ever seen a caterpillar? Have you ever seen them go into the cocoon? Have you ever seen a caterpillar come out of the cocoon? Did he come back as a caterpillar? Came back as a butterfly. There is no way, no scientific proof that any butterfly has ever returned to be a caterpillar again. Once you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, once he has adopted you as his child, there's no turning back. You can run as far as the earth is from the east and west, the north and south. You can be Jonah and buy a ship that takes you to the moon, takes you to Mars or Venus or the next galaxy. You will never be able to go back to what you were after you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. I couldn't stay away because I was no longer a child of Satan. I was released from the camp of captivity of sin, and I was brought in to the family of God. And he tenderly calls you back. He tenderly seeks you out. His love is perfect for his children. In, in some of my classes, I like to use the illustration that if a gunman came into the lobby, I think I would be the first one to approach him. I think that I would offer myself as a shield. Now, I may not. I, I may run the other way and let somebody else do it, but that's at least my personality and my thoughts. One thing I got to tell you, though, is I would never take one of my children and use them as a human shield to protect us. I would never sacrifice my child. But God said, there's only one way to take care of this sin in mankind, and it's to sacrifice his son. It's for him to take our place in death. See, Scripture describes it like this. The full wrath of God was exhausted on Jesus in our place so that it doesn't have to be exhausted on us. You know what's amazing? In Psalm 116, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. The only place that there is sorrow when a Christian dies is here in this sin-riddled earth. This is the only place that there is sorrow. There is great rejoicing in heaven when you get there. The Christian who passes away and dies, there's no sorrow because there's no more pain. You know what? Jesus, you know what Jesus did when he died? When he was buried in that tomb? He was busy. <laughs> he was busy. He met up with Satan and he robbed Satan. You know what he stole? He stole the keys to Hades and, and hell. He took the keys to hell away from, uh, away from Satan. 
He was a little bit busier too. You know what he did? He went over to death and robbed death. You see, when you're a Christian, you can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because when you pass from this life, you wake up in the presence of our Savior. If he, if our Father in heaven, if Jesus, Daddy, was willing to send his son to die on a cross and take the full wrath of our penalties for us, not verses 7 and 8 are a piece of cake for him. 7 and 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. He seats them with princes the princes of his people. I love the fact that he separate poor and needy. It's two distinct categories. It may not sound like it, because when you're poor, you're needy. When you're probably needy, you're probably poor. But he separated those two out. You see, in poverty, when we are poor, you feel like you don't own anything, you feel like you don't have anything, and you feel like you will never have anything. That's what being poor feels like. Now, some of you have heard my testimony. You can sleep for about five minutes. Um, some of you may be fresh. Um, I, I want to review it this morning a little bit. Um, the reason is, is because um, I like you to know me. And when I talk, I want to know you. But I want to share the wounds that happens in this world. You see, what's amazing, the reason why I love our elders so much Pastor Dave Howard, Pastor Larry, Pastor Tim, uh, Pastor Edwin, Gene, um, Leo, the different ones. It, what's amazing about these men's lives is there's wounds on every one of them that this world has delivered them. This, wound has deli- this world has delivered each one of them wounds uh, from sin, Wounds from this life that they didn't deserve, didn't ask for, never looked for. But they are humble men who love Christ and love you. And I want to share just a few things from my own story. I grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. The only way I can describe it is that his mental games were excruciatingly painful. When you met up with him... My parents divorced I, uh, after seven years of age. I only saw him maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year. But when I did meet up with him, the game plan changed from the last time I saw him. Even from the last time I talked to him on the phone, it, I, I couldn't figure out which foot to put forward first, where to go next, how, how to relate to him, how to talk with him. It was just an excruciating mind game that he kept playing. Alcoholism is responsible for 50% of the divorces out there. One of the greatest sorrows I have is, um, uh, like Bobby Swanson has his, has his uh, brother who's been in a wheelchair all of his life. My brother was handicapped all of his life, too. And what's amazing is today in and day out, see the pain that they struggle with on every level of their life. It's just not the pain from the handicap. It's the pain from the teasing, the taunting, the ridicule. It's, it's the pain from trying to walk across the room without falling down. It, it's the pain of, of being 
a man in a crippled body. Now, the statistics are that if you mix alcoholism with a, a, an emotionally challenged or physically challenged child, the divorce rates among the families goes up to 75%. It, it's just both of those things put together are, are extreme challenges that are hard to overcome. And the alcoholism, drug abuse does not help at all. My dad got so bad that my handicapped brother um, was being chased around the house and my, my brother shot my dad in the chest. He lived the rest of his life with a 22 long shell, um, just microns from his heart for the rest of his life. It, it, it's, it's amazing how brutal um, the emotional games that happen from um, the mental abuse that goes on from drug addicts and alcoholics. But that's the only way my brother felt he could escape at that time. A um, couple of other points in my, in my own testimony is we moved five times, lived in six different places, and um, went to five different elementary schools by the time I was in fourth grade. It was discovered that in fourth grade that I couldn't read. And from my own guesstimations, by the time I graduated from high school, I probably had a weak second grade reading level comprehension. I, ultimately, I flunked out of college the first time I tried. I flunked many times, but I just wasn't smart enough. I just kept going back. That's one thing about not being very smart is you just keep going back because you think you can do it, right? <laughs> um, the times are uh, either the challenges at home with the PG&E being shut off in the wintertime or not having very much food in the house. What's amazing about that is my love for deacons because deacons visited our house many times with groceries. And it was so exciting to get the most groceries you've ever seen in your life. They'd bring in 10, 15, 20 bags of food. And it just, it's, it's an impression you deacons leave on our lives growing up. So continue to do your, your work of mercy out there. One thing I wanted to say about the different schools, when I went to different schools, there was always a bully there that wanted to pick on me. I don't know why. <laughs> Every new school had a bully. Oh, there was a couple times there were gangs. And um, I just remember going to Stege, Stege Elementary School, and at first I didn't know if it was like if I was a rock star or if I was just an anomaly, but I, kids were like touching my hair and messing it up all the time. My hair is messed up, it's just because I grew up that way. <clears throat> but it, it's like, I thought maybe, hey, I'm a rock star, they might like me, they're touching my hair and, and playing with it and stuff like that, but in uh, recess time, nobody asked me to play kickball. N nobody asked me to be on their team. But there was one kid, his name was James, I wish I could remember his last name. It's amazing how much you'll remember kindness showed towards you. James invited me to his birthday party. James, if you ever hear this message, I'd love to meet up with you. It was about 1972, 1973, your fourth grade birthday party. I was the only white kid there. This is me, Sean. <laughs> <If you're laughs> so if you're running to James, he went to Steege Elementary School. I lived straight across the street from him, actually, from the school. He lived from, straight across the street from the school. Um, that was a great kindness that I really, really appreciated, and it's dear to my heart today. Um, with bullies and a couple of different times, gangs chasing after me, 
Uh, I got so good at running in high school, I joined the track team. <laughs> Literally, I did, I did all right in the track team. <laughs> um, let me catch up on my notes here. <clears throat> when I was about nine years old, my parents had been divorced for about two years. We'd stopped going to church, and I decided that I would start going to church by myself. So I'm walking to church at nine years of age, and I went to this church down the street from my house for about eight or nine weeks, and once in a while I dragged my three-year-old sister there to that church. What's amazing to me today is that not one person said hi to me. I think I was the only, we were the only kids there at that church. Not one adult stooped down and say, oh, is this your little sister or what's your name? Uh, nothing. And I would imagine by the clothes that I wore, I, my brothers were five and six years older, so I had hand-me-downs. And so my shirts were kind of tattered and too big, and my jeans had holes, and my tennis shoes always had holes in them. So I would imagine when I walked in that church, I was probably look, looked at as one of the untouchables. Do we want that little kid coming to our nice little church? When you get that kind of feedback, when the world feeds you this, when the wounds start coming into you, you start wondering if you're lovable. You start wondering if anybody loves you. You start wondering, with all of these wounds, where is God in all of this? Where is he? When I get the opportunity to uh, share the gospel or get an opportunity to deliver a sermon, I, I like to compare myself to one of the lepers in 2 Kings chapter 7. I come to you with nothing to offer you. I don't have any wealth. I don't have any riches. Um, flunking out of school all the time, so I'm not that smart. But you know what happened to four lepers in 2 Kings chapter 7? The city was being besieged. People were starving. People were eating their own children. They were running out of water. And these lepers said, we're dying no matter what. We're going to leave the city. And they headed towards the enemy camp. And when they got to the enemy camp, they found out nobody was there. It had been vacated. They left the food, they left the water, they left the weapons, they left their jewelry, they left everything, and all of a sudden, those paupers became little kings. They had food, and they had water, and they had wealth. And they went back to the city, and they said, we know where the food is. We know where the water is. It's okay to look at me as one of those lepers. I'm just here to tell you, I found the manna from heaven. I'm just telling you, I found living waters. I found the waters that poured over your wounds will heal your wounds. Jesus said, come to me all who are thirsty. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the manna from heaven. He said, Moses didn't give you the manna. I gave you the manna. I'm the manna from heaven. And I am the well of living waters. All who come to me will never thirst again. See, some of us have been drinking from the wrong wells. We've been drinking from polluted wells. We've been drinking 
We've, we've been down in alcohol like it's going out of style, and it's not feeding your soul. It's killing you. It's, it's killing you. The drugs, it's the wrong place. That's not the well. That's a well of death. That's a polluted well that will ultimately bring your demise and your destruction. It will kill you. But Jesus said, I love you so much. I'll give you the water, the living water, the water that will heal your wounds and give you life. There's some here that um, I'm guilty of it too. Having wounds that haven't healed because I didn't get under the water. I, I didn't stay under the teachings of the Lord. I didn't take the medicine. And what happens with a wound? What do you naturally do with a wound? You want to pick at it. You, you want to play with it, and all of a sudden it festers. And, and it doesn't heal. No matter what you do to it, it, it doesn't heal. We become so consumed sometimes with our wounds. We become so focused on the pain. That's what we think we are. We think we are that pain. We think we are that wound that somebody gave us. That wound we got in this life. I, I got to tell you, you're not your wound. You're not your pain, and you're definitely not your sin. That's not you. That's not who you are. Get under the living waters. Let that wound become a scar. See, what happens with a scar is you never forget the pain that you received. But that all excruciating pain starts to subside when your wound heals and becomes a scar. See, Jesus, with his living water, will heal those wounds. We need to be men and women, brothers and sisters, who get under the teaching of Christ, who are in the word, who are praying, who are under the water, under the fountains of living water, so our wounds will heal. See, because what happens when you bump into another wounded person? They bite you, don't they? <laughs> don't, they don't they bite you? I, I, and that's why they always like the metaphor, carnivorous sheep, sheep that bite. <laughs> get, get your wounds healed. You know what, there's a BWGI conference coming up, um, be, becoming, becoming what God intended. I see an acronym so much I forget what, what it is. I took, the college, I took the seminary class, and the whole class can be summed up like this. The closer you get to Jesus... The closer you get to the Father, the more that you surrender to the Holy Spirit, the less everything else in this life has any meaning. See, the closer you get to Christ, the less wealth has meaning. The closer you get to Christ, the less meaning those wounds have that you have. Those wounds start to heal up. They're not you anymore. Some of us are, I want you to know, this is the title of my story, this is my story this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. See, because the wounds and the testimony is a testimony, that's not my story. My story is Jesus. My story is that he is intimately, intensely involved with his creation and that he gave everything that could possibly be given to have a relationship with you. Come follow me this morning. And I'll lead you to the waters. We need to change our story. 
We need to change our story to a testimony, downgrade it a little bit, and say, this is no longer my story. This is no longer the sin I was in, the, the, the pain caused me in this life is not me and it's not my story. This morning we're going to give you opportunity to come forward and to pray. We're going to give you opportunity to come forward and just talk to the Lord and tell him I want to change my story. I want my wounds healed. I don't want to be so consumed with the pain of this life. I want to be consumed with you, Jesus. I want to show you a video here in, in just a second. Um, in this video is one of my favorite athletes, Evander Holyfield. He, he's, one, he's one of my favorite athletes. This is the reason why, because I know if I got in a ring with him, I'd probably last about five rounds, I think. I'd be running so fast he couldn't catch me. <laughs> but he has all the power, all the skill, and all the strength. He is a mighty warrior in the ring. There, there's, not, there's not many who can contend with him. But you know what? Outside of the ring, he doesn't lord any of his power and skills over anyone he talks to. If I talk to him outside the ring without my boxing gloves on, he'd probably grab me and hug me and be a friend. I just met a police officer this last week down in the desert. He works for one of the prisons. And when he came in, we were at some friends' houses for dinner. When he came in, he's this big, grizzly kind of guy, and he gave me one of those looks that if I wasn't so dumb, I probably would have ran. He just intense, dude. And so I just sat there at dinner time, and he sat directly across from me, and I'm wondering, how am I going to talk to this guy, man? It looks like he wants to rip my head off right now. And so the whole time we're talking to him, and I just share a little bit about, you know, being a teacher and prison ministries, and he's like, yeah, that's cupcake stuff. And, and as we talk, what's amazing, though, is at the end of dinner, when everybody's saying goodbye, I reached out to, to shake his hand. You know what he did? He grabbed me up in those big old arms and gave me a hug. See, that, that, that's what I believe. If you talked with Evander Holyfield, if you got that privilege and opportunity, you wouldn't feel threatened by that man. You wouldn't feel threatened by his power, his skill, and his size because he would humble himself to talk to you. He would humble himself to talk to you as a brother and a sister. We have a video. Tell us what this event means for you, if you can. Well, this event means a lot to me because, you know, with me and God always been first. I'm, I, you know, I, I didn't choose my skin color. I didn't choose a lot of things. I didn't choose my mother. I didn't choose my father. I didn't choose to be brought up poor, but I was. And and what what was given to me was the word of God. And said, if you trust in God, you you'll be able to make the adjustment that you need to make. You can be as good as you want to be. And I trust God. And it's thrilling today to know that even in the All Star Weekend somebody still remember that it's God who gave us this opportunity to to be the country that we really is today. And, you know, believing in God is free. Uh, they can't charge you for that, right? Well, well, they can if they want to, but, you know, because anything worth having, people pay for it. And sometimes because uh, to live for God is free, sometimes people don't take it important because they don't pay for it. 
living with God is free. What I, what I love about his testimony is he says, I didn't choose growing up poor, but, but, but God lifted him up. And what lifted him up? Someone gave him the word of God. Someone gave him the scriptures. I don't know if his mom, dad, a grandmother, a friend, another boxer that shared with him, but he knows where he came from, and he gives all the credit to Jesus Christ for lifting him up out of the poverty. He lifts us up out of the ash heap. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. You know what's different about the needy here? Is some of you may not have grown up poor. Some of you may not be poor today. But what's interesting about the ash heap, what's interesting about the needy is every one of us is needy. Every one of us is in need of a Savior. See, every one of us is found in that ash heap of sin and degradation and destruction. Every one of the ash heap was the place where they took the refuge out of the city in the morning. They took the chamber pots out there. They took the chicken bones and the lamb bones and the carcasses, and they took it out to the city dump just outside the gates. See, they didn't have perfume plastic bags. They didn't have big old dump trucks that come and pick up their garbage and take the trash miles and miles away, hidden out of your sight. No, it was just taken outside and, and dumped just outside the city gates. And if you came from a poor town, nobody burned it. If your governor had enough money, he would pay somebody to burn the ash heap. The, ash heap, the, the trash heap that wasn't burned, if the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, direction, the stench from that heap of garbage would come and waffle over the city, and you'd smell the stench. You know what? God said, I sent my son for you and for your sin. It isn't much more for him to say, I'm going to reach into the garbage heap. I'm going to reach into where you've been cast from this society, where you've been thrown away, where you've been rejected, where you've been tossed, and I'll stick my hands into that garbage and pull Sean Giese out of it. And I'll lift him up. You know what's interesting about this? It says he sends them with the princes of his people. Now, you take a man picked up out of the garbage and set him over here with the princes. Well, the first thing it's going to give you away that you're not a prince is the smell. The smell is going to give you away. The second thing it's going to give you away is you're not dressed like all the other princes. So there's a problem with just picking you up out of the ash heap and setting you with the princes of his people. The problem is you've got to be cleansed. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses away your sins and washes it away and makes you like new. But God doesn't stop there. Now he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he clothes you with the clothes of royalty, of righteousness and perfection. And now you can sit with the princes. Ladies, he dons you with the most beautiful gown suited only for a princess. And he lets you sit with the princesses of his people. See, all of a sudden you've gone from poverty and you've gone from neediness, and you've gone from want and destruction, and now you're a prince? It, it happens in an instant. It happens overnight. It happens when you cry out to Jesus and say, I am sick of these wounds taking over my life. I need hope. I need joy. I need a future. I'm sick and tired of my sins bringing death and destruction to me and those around me. I want Jesus as my Savior. That's when it starts. Now, when I look at my life, so, some of you may say, 
I, I mean, I've been there. I, I think my major problem was I didn't understand that we all have an IEP. All of us have an individual education program that God has written out for you specifically with your name on it and your fingerprint and your retina scan. It's just developed just for you. Another way to look at it is it's a detox program. See, while God lifts you up out of that ash heap and covers you with his blood and cleanses you, he takes you through and trains you up as a child. He trains you up as a prince and a princess. And during that time, uh, Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is the passage for detox. If you want to know what the detox passage is, it's Hebrews chapter 12. See, it says that God scourges his sons. In other words, he works out all the impurities and desires for this life. He's working it out of your life. And some of our struggle is we're, it hurts. It, it, it's a painful process. But it's a painful process that brings health and results. It's a painful process only because we want to hold on to the things of this world. The less we want to hold on to the things of this world, the more we want to release it, the less painful that process is. You know what, some of us, and, I, I, and I'm guilty of it too, some of us want to hold on to our pain. Some of us want to hold on to our wounds because we believe that's who we are. It's a security blanket. But God is saying, no, I'm going to take these security blankets that you have, these filthy, dirty rags away from you, and I'm going to give you robes and blankets of royalty. But as you give them up, sometimes you can see it as kind of a detox, uh, I, I, I miss that sin. I, I miss that sin. But, but God is gently, gently moving you in the direction of being a son.